Well, welcome everybody. I have seven o'clock, so let's get started. Uh, hi, my name is Linda Griffith and I am the IPTA staff. The Illinois Physical Therapy Foundation, the IPTF, is delighted to bring you the Spotlight on Research webinar tonight. We have a good turnout of over 50 people and I know people will be continuing to join us. We are very excited to have the IPTF Research Committee discussing the ins and outs of deciding on how to pick a research topic and then to either do a research poster or go on to do a complete research study. Not only will you be learning the latest about completing research, you will also be earning one hour of free live CE. The IPTF mission is to support physical therapy research in programs like this, public education, and the development of the future of our profession through student scholarships. Along with discussing how to complete research, the presenters will also discuss the IPTF research mentor opportunities, as well as the IPTF $1,000 research grants and research poster opportunities. We are already planning for our 2022 poster hall. We will start accepting poster abstracts on August 3rd. And if you are really ambitious and come up with a research project, we have funding for a few research grants. Applications for the grants are due September 15th. I know we also have several, several educators on our meeting tonight. I do want to mention that we are currently accepting applications for our student-to-student -student scholarship, which is open to any IPTA, SPT, or SPTA who is in their last year of studies. Please encourage your eligible students to apply as the deadline is August 1. Please remember, in order to earn your CE, you need to make sure you are logged into your IPTA profile before you complete the survey. And now I would like to introduce our presenters. Donna Zilke, PT, MPT, is a physical therapist and a program lead clinician for the Center of Excellence in Gait, Balance, and Falls Prevention at Mary Joy Rehabilitation Hospital in Wheaton, Illinois. Donna has over 25 years of experience as a physical therapist and in rehabilitation service roles to include direct patient care, education, research, and program development. Donna is also an adjunct faculty member at Midwestern University in the physical therapy program. Donna is extremely qualified to lead this presentation from a clinician's point of view, and we are happy that she is joining us. Dr. Giovanni Berardi, PT, DPT, PhD, OCS, received his DPT from Roseland Franklin University and has focused professionally in the management of chronic pain. He completed his PhD training at Marquette and is currently a postdoctoral student at the University of Iowa. He has focused on research throughout his career and is also the chair of the IPTF Research Committee. He served as a mentor for our 2020 IPTF $1,000 research grant recipients and is interested in all things research. Dr. Brianna Bree Reynolds, PT, PhD, FAAOMPT is a physical therapist who graduated with a Bachelor of Science in PT from Bradley and then completed a post-professional DPT orthopedic manual therapy residency and fellowship through the Ola Grimsby Institute. Completed her PhD in physical therapy with Nova Southeastern University and her dissertation examined the effect of cervical spine thrust joint manipulation on individuals with TMD. 
and it was for her PhD dissertation that Dr. Reynolds used the one the IPTF $1,000 research grant to help fund her research. She later presented her findings on a spotlight in research in 2019. Hopefully some of you saw her. Dr. Reynolds currently serves as an associate professor and director of assessment and research at South College DPT program in Knoxville, Tennessee. And she is also a member of the IPTF research committee. And finally, I do wanna give a special thank you to Dr. Sarah Keller, DPT NCS. Dr. Keller is also a member of the IPTF research committee and she graciously agreed to coordinate this program with the presenters. Thank you to all who made this program possible. And now let's sit back and learn about how to conduct research. All right, thank you very much, Linda, and thank you all for joining us this evening. First slide lists our objectives that you can review. Um, just to quickly summarize, our goal this evening is that we um, will have a discussion really focusing on clinicians doing research as well as people that are new to the research field. Um, we hope to take you through some strategies for success, not only in the development of a research project, but then um, moving on to disseminate whatever information is obtained in a project, whether it be through a journal article or some form of a conference presentation. And then we plan to close with the discussion on a successful abstract as well as grant writing. Um, so to start, just to make sure that everyone is on the same page in terms of why we feel that it's important to have clinician researchers, it goes back to um, the, the concept of knowledge translation. So we feel that there is a definite need for practicing clinicians to also be engaged in conducting and or assisting with research in order to bridge the gap between the science that's conducted in the laboratory and application in clinical practice. <clears throat> we think that um, in order to bridge that gap, we need to have research that produces results that are applicable to, as well as feasible with, patients with multiple comorbidities. Um, those of us that are in the clinic, you may have your primary diagnosis, but we all know that our patients have a whole host of other medical issues, and we need um, research results that we can utilize with these types of patients. We need research that produces results that is applicable to patients early in the stages of recovery or in the more acute stages of disease process. We need um, research that has protocols that are realistic, um, ones that we can duplicate within the clinical setting with the, within the constraints that we have of a day-to-day -day schedule. And we also need research that will help us demonstrate that what we're doing in the clinic, all of our interventions are in fact 
effective. Um, we need to be able to provide evidence that our care is making um, the impact that <clears throat> we need in order to be reimbursed by whatever payer source that we're utilizing. So why um, is it hard then to do research when you're in the clinic? Why do we need to have a webinar like this? Um, it's very challenging as a practicing clinician to get started as well as bring a project to fruition. Um, and that, as we all know, is because there's so many competing priorities within the clinical environment. Um, we practice in the clinic because we want to work patient care can be very demanding, both from a physical perspective as well as an emotional perspective. <clears throat> we also have to deliver our patient care and meet whatever productivity guidelines that has been set for us by our setting, um, as well as deliver the care that meets the standards that have been set by our reimbursement parties. Um, both of these need to be addressed in order for us to be able to stay in business and keep treating our patients. Um, many of us also, in addition to patient care, have other operational duties that we're responsible for, whether it's mentoring other clinicians, whether it's helping with scheduling, there's other things that we have to fit into the day in addition to patient, patient care. And then there's that overarching goal, I think, no matter what field we're in, that we're trying to establish a balance between uh, what goes on at work and what's happening at home. Um, I know for myself, as well as the clinicians that I work with, this is a daily struggle. We tend to get there early. We tend to work through lunch and we take our work home with us quite often. So um, it's hard, I think, as a clinician when this is already a struggle to look at research and adding that on to um, what is already competing for our time. It can also be challenging to get started because for a lot of us, um, we don't have a whole lot of experience with research. Um, a lot of people have not been involved with research since they were in school, and some of us graduated before research was a huge part of the PT curriculum. So that can lead to a lack of confidence in that whatever project a clinician may involve, be involved with, is that really information that other people would want to learn about. Um, the process of research can be intimidating. Uh, because of that, and it can be a difficult system to navigate. Uh, if your healthcare organization that you're employed by doesn't have a lot of individuals, it can be very challenging to try to figure out um, who does the approval, what paperwork you need to fill out, so that can further complicate the process. And it can also be difficult to get started if there isn't a whole lot of support for a clinician. It's very easy to feel that you're embarking on this journey um, all by yourself. You're carrying the entire load of the project on your own. That could be coming from administration. Um, I've often heard that there isn't a lot of support because you are a 
hired to treat patients. That's what you're there to do. If you want to do something else, that's great, but that can't be a priority. Um, and then there can also be a lack of support from peers. If you're involved with some sort of a research study or an additional project and that pulls you away from your patient care, it can be then the case where your coworkers have to pick up the bulk of the patient care and that can lead to um, some conflicts along that line. And then last, um, if there isn't anyone else within your organization that's involved with research, there can be a lack of mentorship. So really no one to go to as a resource. So there could be a lack of support on many levels that make it challenging to get started. So knowing that um, there are a number of different hurdles we have to overcome, Giovanni is going to start with some ideas on how to get the project going. All right, thank you, Donna. Uh, so as, a, as Donna was mentioning, obviously there's a few challenges in regards to implementing research within a clinical setting. Uh, so if that is the case with this next section, we just wanna discuss some general ideas and thoughts in regards to how to get started, uh, particularly related to case studies, uh, which can perhaps be more easily implemented uh, with your day-to-day you know, -day clinical operations. Uh, so if you do have an interest in regards to getting started with research, you know, where do you start? Uh, so first, our, our first uh, thing to start with is generating a good research question. You need an idea uh, that's gonna help uh, generate a, a couple different uh, aspects of research uh, for the sake of implementation. So when we talk about starting a research question, you wanna generate an idea that's generally interesting. Obviously not just interesting to you, but relevant to uh, PT practice. Uh, so your idea, you want to make sure is going to be of interest to the, all those other clinicians out there um, that are practicing as well. Now, as Donna had mentioned, obviously there's multiple challenges in regards to implementing research in a clinical setting. Uh, so when developing a good research question, you want to make sure it's a question that is feasible uh, to be completed within your clinical setting, uh, not just for the sake of your day-to-day -day operations, but you want to make sure uh, you have a project that you're going to be successful in completing, uh, especially if you're going to take all the time and efforts um, uh, within your clinical responsibilities uh, to get a project done. Um, and next slide, please. Thank you. Okay, so in regards to developing a good research question, you want to try to focus on a few different aspects. Uh, so you want your research question to be concise, clear, and focused. And really you wanna be focused for the sake of, of not going off on different paths. If you have a more focused research question, you'll be able to generate a project uh, that's gonna be straightened to the point and hopefully uh, very well implemented within the clinical setting. Uh, so that being said, you don't wanna to be too broad or too narrow with your research question. You wanna to start to narrow down uh, to a specific study population, for example. Uh, so if you do normally see a, a certain clinical population uh, that you um, are more comfortable with seeing, uh, you may be able to narrow down to that specific clinical population that you see. Um, in addition to identifying a clinical population, you want to identify certain outcomes uh, so you could track changes over time and obviously uh, have some results in regards to things to discuss when you get to the point of results and discussion if you foresee, if you foresee yourself uh, submitting an abstract or even potentially a manuscript such as a case series or a case report uh, somewhere down the road. Next slide, please. 
So if you do get to the point at which you feel like you generated a good research question, you know, what do you do before you do get started? Um, we really want to highlight that it's, it's critically important to perform a good literature review. You want to have a good understanding of what is out there and what others have done also before you. Uh, having a good back, background will help to not only uh, give you understanding, but help focus your research question uh, so you're not being too broad or too narrow, as we spoke about. Uh, really, you want to make sure you know what you don't know and also make sure you have a good understanding um, of what has been done in the past and, and if what you plan to do uh, can be improved upon what others have uh, reported in, in previous literature. Next slide, please. So in developing a good research question, uh, we talked about making it not only interesting, but relevant to physical therapy. And, and how can you go about doing this? And this list is not necessarily all inclusive of all the options, uh, but a couple of things to consider is, is your case particularly unique? Uh, as I mentioned, perhaps on a prior slide, uh, do you see a certain patient population or a certain um, uh, patient has come in that is rather unique and different from what perhaps physical therapists normally see? Um, so it doesn't, necess doesn't necessarily have to be just a, the patient themselves. Uh, but it could also be a treatment option or assessment uh, that you perform on a, a routine basis with a specific patient as well. In regards to making it relevant, uh, as we mentioned before, you want to make sure it's relevant to physical therapy practice. And will your idea or your question particularly impact how physical therapists deliver their care? Um, if you are having some troubles generating a good research question uh, and you feel like you do have an interest to get involved, uh, a couple of different avenues you can pursue. Um, in regards to generating a question is obviously first and foremost, staying relevant with the literature. Obviously we have a lot of great journals out there, particularly uh, focused towards physical therapy and rehabilitation. Uh, so referencing those, uh, but you can also stay current with a lot of hot topic issues uh, related to physical therapy through a lot of the resources that are put out through either IPTA, uh, APTA, as well as other organizations. Obviously a recent past over the course of the past year, um, if you've kind of paid attention to uh, a lot of the literature, there's been a, a great deal of focus directed towards rehabilitation uh, post-COVID. Uh, so it's obviously a current hot topic that has gained a lot of traction. Uh, so an example such as that, uh, they do commonly uh, come up from time to time. Um, in regards to generating a relevant project, uh, you wanna make sure, you know, has this particular question been addressed before? Uh, if it has, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not important or shouldn't be addressed again. Uh, but perhaps you want to make sure you become aware with what has been done. Uh, so in case you have to modify your, your question in a particular way, or perhaps you can improve upon what others have done. Um, particularly to research in the PT profession, there's quite a bit of research out there that is more formally done in, in a research setting uh, that hasn't been done in a clinical setting. Uh, so oftentimes that's an avenue that you can pursue uh, by staying relevant with the current literature and, and perhaps work on more of the clinical implementation of some of these research ideas. Uh, that are coming out. Next slide, please. So if, if you do have an interest to get started, perhaps with a, a case study, which once again, maybe a certain avenue you could pursue a bit more easily within a clinical setting, there's a couple of different aspects you can uh, pursue, uh, either a prospective case uh, study or even a retrospective case study. Uh, so with a pros prospective case report or case study, uh, is typically involving a situation where uh, you kind of have a, a know-all of a certain patient that may be coming in. Uh, so you're kind of being able to prepare in advance and generate a, a full protocol from the time at which you first make contact with the patient all the way to the very end of their plan of care. 
Uh, so it gives you the opportunity to plan in advance and perhaps be a bit more prepared uh, in regards to generating data particular to your, your case report. Um, despite being a case study, it's still extremely important, once again, to make sure you perform a good literature review, uh, having a good understanding of any advances in the diagnosis or management of the condition. Once again, if you're particularly interested in exploring a, a novel or a newer assessment approach, uh, you want to make sure you're, you're knowledgeable of what's been done in the past and how yours may relate or perhaps improve uh, physical therapist assessment. Um, in regards to standard practice, uh, obviously you want to make sure you, your understanding of what others are typically doing. Uh, obviously staying relevant is in the literature is one uh, way to do that, uh, but also speaking with other colleagues and perhaps other researchers uh, away from your institution uh, to make sure you, you feel like you have a good understanding of what's being done and why your idea is potentially different. In addition, in regards to developing a prospective case study, you want to make sure you have an understanding of what outcomes you need to assess, particularly over the course of the plan of care. So you can identify, you know, has your assessment approach or your treatment approach potentially uh, improved the way uh, that we uh, treat that particular patient? And last but not least, as Donna has hinted on, uh, you want to make sure you implement uh, your study within daily practice. And uh, that being said, you want to make sure it's clinically relevant to those PTs who are practicing out there. Uh, next slide, please. So in contrast to a prospective case study, there's an option to pursue a retrospective case report. Uh, so with a retrospective case report, there's less of an opportunity to perhaps organize in advance. Uh, this is more along the lines of the situation where you have a, a unique uh, case come in, whether it be patient related or treatment related for that matter. Uh, and you wanna look back in time to see you know, what outcomes do we have, for example. Uh, despite being retrospective, a, a review of the literature is still important for similar regards as we just recently spoke about. And you also still wanna have a directed question. Uh, just because you have some data available, you don't just wanna go mining to see what you find. Uh, if you have a directed question, you'll be better able to generate uh, a more succinct focus and also perhaps uh, be a bit easier to get to the point of uh, disseminating your work, whether it be for an abstract submission or even for a manuscript. So when we talk about digging into the data that's available, you'll likely pursue any of the medical records that are available, any uh, patient reported outcomes, and any additional assessments uh, that you may have implemented with your day-to-day -day, uh, um, assessments with your patient. Uh, now, that being said, looking back retrospectively on a particular case, case may be susceptible to a couple of things. Obviously, missing data is one thing. Uh, like we talked about before, a retrospective case uh, study is not necessarily uh, performed uh, with much advance notice. So sometimes you may get to the point where you think, you know, I wish I'd done this or done that, uh, but that's okay. We could definitely learn from those situations as well, uh, particularly when you go on to your discussion part of your case report. And also something to be aware of if you are missing certain components uh, and you feel like it may be important to touch base with that particular patient or even other colleagues that have uh, seen this patient as well in regards to get a, a more firm idea of, of what had occurred over the course of the plan of care, uh, there may be a certain amount of recall bias there. Uh, so definitely need to be aware of that. So as we just spoke about, obviously a retrospective case report may have some limitations, uh, but it also does provide opportunity in regards to generating new ideas uh, and perhaps even uh, future studies as well, uh, depending uh, on what you find uh, with the available data that you have. Next slide, please. So we started off talking about implementing a case study, which perhaps may be a bit more easy to implement within a clinical setting. Uh, but 
talked about, you know, perhaps differentiating a case report versus a case series, and you'll see both within the literature. Um, in regards to a case report, it's typically a detailed report of a diagnosis, uh, a treatment modality or response to treatment, as well as follow-up after treatment of an individual patient. Um, sometimes you'll see uh, the terminology of N of one as well, which is more of a prospective uh, case report, which typically follows a patient uh, over the course of time during a, uh, following a certain intervention type. Uh, so you see that in the clinical literature as well. Uh, versus a case series typically involves a, a group of case reports or group of cases that you may have seen involving multiple patients uh, who were exposed either to similar treatment plans, uh, similar assessment techniques, and so on. Uh, depending on your setting, there may be more of a kind of hard set line as far as what uh, differentiates a case report versus a case series. Um, I know some institutions may define, at least from a, an IRB or institutional review board standpoint, uh, that if you have three or more patients uh, in your case uh, report, then it transitions a case series. Uh, but you may want to be aware of the, the differences there as well. Next slide, please. So not only is performing clinical research important, but uh, and also generating case reports a, a great idea, but there definitely has been a, a great renewed interest in case reports over in recent years. Uh, over the past years, there's been a, a, a bit of journals that have kind of gone away from publishing case reports and case studies or case uh, series. But I just put two examples up, obviously related to JOSPT as well as PTJ, uh, two journals that are actively uh, soliciting uh, case reports and case series uh, from clinicians. Uh, you can definitely keep your eyes open for others as well. And there's many clinical journals out there uh, that are advocating for increased production of, of case reports and case series. Next slide, please. So if you do have an interest in regards to getting started with implementing research in your clinical setting, I just want to highlight that there may be a few things you want to be aware of and specifically related to uh, any institutional review board policies or institutional policies in which you practice, uh, particularly revolving around the area of consent or assent. Um, so before you get started, you may wanna be aware of any human protection or human subjects protections training that you may need to complete. For example, like city training, uh, which is widely available and free uh, on the, uh, via the internet. So you could take online modules if necessary. Um, if you do need to, uh, complete an informed consent for your research project, which is most likely the case for a prospective study, and perhaps maybe with a retrospective study, you wanna make sure you take the appropriate steps necessary to fulfill your institutional policies in obtaining an informal informed consent. Uh, now, I know some institutions do incorporate as part of their uh, HIPAA authorization or HIPAA forms, uh, that data that is collected, or at least clinical data that is collected can potentially be used for uh, future research purposes. Um, that being said, not every institution has that incorporated, so definitely be aware of what your institution has uh, incorporated within their HIPAA forms. Uh, additionally, that when you get to the point of if you are interested in submitting a manuscript, you may need to demonstrate uh, that you have obtained approval in regards to consent or assent. Uh, so definitely be aware of that as well, because you don't want to get to the point where uh, you have a, a good manuscript ready to go and a journal will reject you because uh, you may not have the necessary information in advance. And last but not least, uh, if, the informed, if an informed consent is not necessary, you may still need to obtain uh, some sort of consent or assent from either the patient, parent, or even the guardian of the individual. And next slide, please. 
So Donna kind of highlighted on this a little bit already, but just to touch base, obviously there's multiple reasons for publishing a case report or case series. Obviously it's significantly important for us as clinicians to add to the PT literature, uh, providing evidence for assessments that we do as physical therapists, uh, how, we able, how we're able to get to a diagnosis, uh, screening patients for a variety of comorbidities or red flags, for example, as well as providing evidence for our treatment outcomes. Next slide, please. So with the steps in getting to the point of writing a case report or case series, and with any of the topics, you wanna to make sure you kind of identify a couple of things to talk about in, in your manuscript uh, or in your, in your paper. Uh, so you wanna to try to identify topics that are either unique or rare features of a particular disease. Um, are you providing a unique therapeutic approach for a certain uh, clinical population? Uh, perhaps there was an anatomical variation that led to a very, uh, varying outcome with a particular patient, for uh, example. Uh, unexpected associations between the disease process as well as symptoms, uh, which may require uh, some sort of different uh, assessment techniques when evaluating a patient. Um, it could also be an unexpected event in the management of the patient, and this was very much reported on over the course of the past year, for example, related to COVID. Um, and also potential topics could include shedding new light on pathogenesis of a disease, and once again, uh, providing rationale for treatments that we use uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Next slide, please. So if you do get to the point where you feel like you, you, you've completed a study and you've generated data uh, and you do have uh, permission or IRB consent uh, to utilize the uh, patient uh, case uh, and you get to the point where you wanna submit a manuscript, there's a couple of things you wanna perhaps pay attention to uh, before getting to that point. Uh, so first and foremost, you want to review any journal instructions that may exist, and uh, these vary quite a bit depending on where you would want to submit a manuscript. Um, first and foremost, you want to go ahead and identify, are they accepting case reports? Obviously, I showed JOSPT and PTJ, uh, but that being said, not every journal is uh, accepting case reports and case series, so uh, be cognizant of that. In addition to that, uh, each journal will have specified instructions in regards to uh, sections that are required any word count limitations that could be either section by section or even for the total manuscript. Um, they may have certain formatting related requirements, uh, limitations with an amount of tables and figures to be included, as well as references. Uh, now, if you feel like that's a bit overwhelming and uh, you're not sure if you know in advance where you may want to submit uh, a manuscript for journal purposes, uh, you could always highlight or, or reference the CARE guidelines and checklist. And CARE basically stands for case report. This is uh, easily found on the internet as well. Uh, many journals do require this checklist to be submitted with your manuscript, just as a kind of check by uh, a bullet point checklist of what should generally be, generally be included within uh, a case report or case series. Uh, so it's a good starting point uh, to identify uh, when you are initiating a manuscript. Right, next slide, please. So over, over these next slides, we'll go ahead and discuss just a couple of these uh, checklist points um, obviously, some are a bit more um, straight to the point, obviously, with the title. Uh, but with the title, obviously, you, you want to make sure it's something that's going to be attention-grabbing uh, and also highlight the importance of your manuscript. Uh, the abstract will be an important section as well, as this is the, commonly the first point of contact, if you would, with your manuscript, as most people will read first before the manuscript. And you may want to hold off on completing your manuscript uh, until you, you've completed your full man, uh, completing your abstract before you, 
uh, you've completed, after you've completed your manuscript, excuse me, uh, just so you could give overall a good synopsis uh, of the study. In regards to the introduction, obviously this is gonna tie back into your literature review and you really wanna highlight why your particular study is important and why it's particularly important to clinical practice pertaining to physical therapy and also uh, acknowledge or introduce any uh, new knowledge points or learning concepts that would be required uh, as uh, a reader would go ahead and uh, progress through your manuscript. And obviously you would wanna highlight the purpose as well. And next slide, please. So another section that is very commonly incorporated within a case report or case series is the case presentation. This is almost the, the meat and potatoes, if you would, uh, of your case report or case series. Uh, here you're gonna provide a, a very detailed uh, description of the case overall. Uh, once again, this may be from the initial point of contact all the way through uh, follow-up assessment, uh, detailing the signs, symptoms, uh, mechanism of injury, medical history, any assessments you may have performed, treatments you've implemented, and so on. Um, a lot of times this uh, will be one of the caveats that people may not spend enough time on. You wanna really make sure you give yourself an opportunity to present and describe your case very well. Now, that being said, you want a lot of detail, but you don't want to include any personal data. So you're using non-identifiable uh, patient-related data uh, within your manuscript as well. Uh, typically, the case presentation is performed in chronological order, uh, which does make sense from a clinical standpoint, and usually readers are better able to follow in that fashion. And in regards to the differential diagnosis, um, you want to make sure you provide some elaboration here in regards to uh, you know, how you perhaps came to a specific diagnosis according to the assessments uh, that you've conducted. So definitely providing a rationale uh, using any relevant findings from your subjective and objective examination. In regards to treatments implemented, uh, obviously you want to detail all the particular treatments that you've implemented as a physical therapist, especially if you're highlighting the treatment technique within the case uh, report or case series. Uh, you also may want to highlight any non-PT related treatments as well, which may have influenced uh, the outcomes pertaining to the case. Now, when we talk about outcomes, you wanna make sure you have what you need uh, and also be able to explain why uh, you have chosen particular assessments uh, in documenting change uh, in the function or change in, in symptomology according to the patient that you're seeing. Uh, you wanna make sure these assessments are uh, perhaps a bit more objective in nature, uh, but also standardized and used commonly in practice. Um, this will give you an opportunity to better describe your results and describe any changes uh, that may have occurred according to the assessment or perhaps treatment uh, that you're highlighting in your case. Uh, and also you wanna make sure you have long-term follow-up as best as you can. Uh, and that's always something that's looked upon um, in regards to uh, a case report or case series. And next slide, please. And the last section that is significantly important is the discussion. And somewhat highlight the discussion as being the most important part of the case report as this is a section that provides you an opportunity uh, to discuss um, and convince people uh, why your particular case is important, why it's novel or potentially unique uh, to the particular patient case or the treatment intervention perhaps that you're highlighting. Next slide, please. So with the discussion, you could describe any mechanisms of the pathology uh, or injury, uh, diagnostic pathways that which can commonly be highlighted with using uh, flow diagrams, for example, uh, so for more of a visual versus just based off of writing. Uh, and you really wanna highlight the points of interest or the points of novelty pertaining to your case uh, when it comes to your case report or case series. 
And also in the discussion, you want to tie back into the relevant literature that you perform with your literature review and your introduction. Uh, so what are you particularly adding to the PT literature uh, that hasn't been added already? Um, some journals are uh, also asking for uh, a patient perspective, which is a, a patient report, if you would, of outcomes and uh, their experience over the course of the physical therapy plan of care. And really want to highlight any learning points that physical therapists can take home with them uh, and implement within day-to-day -day practice as well. And next slide, please. Okay, and overall, uh, so well-written cases will reflect inquiry, problem-solving, clinical decision-making from examination or assessment all the way through diagnosis and treatment and outcomes. Uh, so you definitely want to detail from beginning to end in regards to your particular uh, case study. Um, in regards to reading a case report, you want to make sure you're providing the readership or clinicians uh, with something they could perhaps immediately relate to and also perhaps apply uh, the elements that you've discussed into clinical practice. And once again, I just want to reinforce, you want to make sure you uh, incorporate a lot of clinical reasoning into why you've chosen certain assessments or implemented certain treatment techniques uh, with a particular patient that you've chosen. And next, I believe we'll pass it back to Donna, who will discuss perhaps some uh, other methods, perhaps, of getting involved with research in the clinic. All right, thank you, Giovanni. Um, I just want to take a couple minutes to call to your attention um, a, a few other non-experimental designs that are often, from my experience, I found to be easier to conduct in the clinic um, as opposed to a formal randomized control trial. Um, the first non-experimental design is a quality improvement project. So um, this type of a project is, a, is systematic, it's formal, um, it's an approach to analyzing practice performance and any efforts to improve that performance. So you're looking at a practice pattern um, in your facility and looking at ways to improve it. One advantage to this type of design is that it does um, carry the potential for some increased administrative support potentially if what you're doing aligns with the overall goals of your organization. If you're trying to streamline a workflow or a process and that ties into the overarching goals of the organization, um, you may get some more support, some more buy-in that way. Um, they also have been a way that I've been able to um, complete a clinical pathway. Um, other organizations have clinical ladder programs and a QI project um, often is applicable in this situation. Similarly, if your organization has a merit-based pay system, you could potentially have a QI project as a goal. And then as you mark off steps on that project, that could potentially translate to points on your performance review. Um, another advantage to a QI project is that if it is successful and you do discover a way to streamline workflow, it could in the future, if you're more efficient, end up increasing time available for additional studies. 
Um, a main advantage that I have found is it's a little bit easier of a process. Um, it could, depending on your facility, not require a formal IRB approval. Quite often there's a separate quality improvement committee, um, so it can be an easier process to get started with. Um, the other non uh, oh, and just a quick example of a QI project that I was able to be involved with at Mary and Joy um, came about after we opened our technology center. And unfortunately, after opening, we didn't see a huge increase in utilization of the various forms of technology contained within the center. So we put together a QI project. Um, it started with surveys, some focus groups, really to try to identify what the barriers were to utilization. Um, we took the results of the surveys as well as the, the focus groups, designed some educational interventions, and then re-administered our surveys and re-held our groups afterwards and saw um, an increased buy-in and then that correlated with an increased utilization. Um, so it was just a way to get um, some involvement in a more formalized data collection type process. Another non-experimental design Giovanni referred to with respect to case reports, but a retrospective study is um, a great way to take advantage if your organization does have an electronic re medical record, um, because there is a whole host of information that you have access to. Um, you can go back and get demographic information, as well as additional information information that is much easier to find if you use consistent terminology, protocols, and outcome measures. Um, a little later in the, in the presentation, I'll try to provide some practical su uh, suggestions on how to get that set up and set into place. Okay, so now um, we through Gio Giovanni's part of the presentation, tried to provide some information on how to help you define your question. We've tried to offer some different formats of potential studies. So once you've defined your question and decided what format will best work for you, um, I want to try to provide some practical tips on how to not only help you get your project off the ground, but help you um, um, successfully bring it to fruition. Um, the biggest ways that I have found are through various forms of collaboration um, in, to include finding mentors, serving as a clinical site, um, establishing partnerships, and potentially collaborating with um, vendors of different forms of technology. So, so to touch briefly on mentors, um, a mentor basically could be anybody that has more experience um, in research than you, which when I first started was pretty much everybody in my organization. Um, but a mentor can really help you decide on your question, streamline the question, and help you determine the best project format to really address your question. 
Um, the mentors can often help with the paperwork. Um, they're familiar with what needs to be completed, what the deadlines are, um, as well as potentially what, in, what individuals to address your information to. Um, when trying to decide a mentor within your organization, um, don't be a don't feel like it needs to be a physical therapist or a physical therapy assistant. Think outside the box. You could go outside of your department. Um, the individual that probably has had the most influence on my career is actually an SLP. So she doesn't know the, the PT outcomes or the PT interventions, but she's familiar enough with inpatient rehab, research design, statistics, to where she um, she and I complement each other, and it's led to some very successful collaborations. The second form of collaboration that's an option would be if you and your facility would serve as a clinical site for a larger RCT. Um, we've been able to find um, our uh, multi-site trials looking for data collection sites. Um, and it's a great way to get involved because you're kind of a piece of the puzzle without completing the entire puzzle yourself, without being the one to charge um, and lead the entire project. We had the opportunity when the modified DGI came out to serve as a data collection site. So it was a great opportunity for myself and some other clinicians to start to collect the data. We ran patients through the tests, admitted that. Um, so it was a great way to be part of a much bigger project without having the bulk of the project um, on our shoulders. And another way um, of collaboration that I've had a lot of success with has been through developing partnerships. Um, obviously, you can look to PT and PTA programs within your area. Um, we have had several successful partnerships with Midwestern, um, particularly looking at how individuals after discharging from us for inpatient rehab for stroke, how they really truly reintegrated back into the community. Um, but it doesn't have to be a PT program. You could look to other programs within universities that are not even healthcare related. Um, we were able to partner with, actually it was the computer science program at DePaul um, and worked on helping them develop some video games that were more patient friendly than those that were commercially available. So again, it was a great way for uh, myself and some clinicians to collect data, feed it back without leading the entire study. Um, look to your nurses. They see the same patients that we do um, and they have an awareness of what needs to be addressed. One of our orthopedic physical therapists worked with the nurses on her unit and did a QI project utilizing TENS to replace medications in the management of post-surgical pain. 
Um, and then look to your peers, look to your fellow allied health clinicians. Um, I feel like this was done a lot with um, the during the pandemic. I know we had to we did a close collaboration amongst PT, OT, speech, and neuropsych to really look at our outcomes with our folks that were with us post COVID. Um, and then last but not least, consider other levels of care. I'm very fortunate in that um, Mary Joy is part of a large health court organization. Um, so we have been able to collaborate with some of our acute care sites um, and we're able to look at what they did during their acute care stay after admission for stroke and how that correlated with not only their performance during inpatient rehab, but ultimately their status at discharge and their discharge destination. So that could be a potential for a partnership as well. Um, and then last but not least, um, partnering with uh, technology vendors. Um, I, I feel like this commonly occurs, um, most of us have walked through the vendor fair at CSM, um, and it is a situation where um, the vendors are often looking for clinicians to work with, right? Because if a facility is considering purchasing their equipment, they want evidence that it's better than the usual standard of care. Um, it can be a slippery slope though, because it does lead to the potential for bias, um, the potential for conflict of interest, or potentially appearing that you and your organization are endorsing a particular project over another. Um, so the only piece of advice I would share would be make sure before you enter into this type of a partnership, make sure you're aware of any policy that your facility may have um, that may um, preclude your partnership. Also, be aware of any policies that the vendor may have. Um, if you are looking at using the equipment with a particular diagnosis, you should be able to share your results no matter whether they favored the device or not. So just make sure that your vendor doesn't have a policy that would preclude you from sharing results that don't favor the device. Um, but it can be an opportunity, again, for um, us as clinicians to gather data, look at how a device is used, maybe with a particular diagnosis, or a way of helping gather data that would develop variations in the features of the device or help establish protocols for use. Um, an example of this in outpatient, um, we were involved with looking at utilization of a, a robotic exoskeleton with community dwelling um, adults that had chronic incomplete spinal cord injuries. Um, so those are just ways I <clears throat> wanted to share with respect to making sure that you feel supported as you're going on whatever research path that you decide. 
Um, I also would like to try to share some um, practical tips in terms of once you have your topic and the format identified, once you have your support system in place, um, there are a couple other things that I have found to be very successful or very helpful in trying to establish that foundation to set you up for success. And that really comes from making sure that your practice is standardized, um, especially with respect to what outcome measures you're utilizing, um, the treatment protocols that are in place, as well as how you're utilizing your electronic medical record, okay? So with respect, to standardizing your outcome measures, if you are consistently utilizing the same outcome measure, no matter what it is, when you are in the future trying to go back, whether it's for a retrospective study, a case report, if those outcome measures are there, it makes those future comparisons much easier, all right? Um, some practical examples with respect to standardizing per diagnosis. We have standardized for stroke, anyone admitted with the stroke diagnosis at admission and discharge has a 10 meter walk, a BERG and a pass completed. So then anything that we want to look at in the future related to PT with stroke, we know we have the same outcome measures completed. All right, looking from a functional perspective, um, with respect to gait, no matter what the diagnosis, if a goal on evaluation is set for walking at discharge, a 10 meter walk is completed. Um, often on evaluation, that score is a zero because they either need too much help to walk or they can't walk the distance required to the test. But at least we have that baseline in there and it's consistently. So again, when we go back in the future, we know that the same um, outcome measure has been completed. With respect to treatment protocols, again, if the same process has been followed, your future comparisons are much easier. An um, example of this would have been the standardization of practice that was utilized um, post-COVID, um, particularly with respect to how they were titrated from oxygen, the types of things that we looked for. Again, because we had a more uh, formal pathway to follow, uh, the com future comparisons is much easier to do. Um, similarly with stroke, we've looked at how to increase walking outside of the PT sessions. So we have a definite protocol that we follow by which patients are um, given pedometers to wear when they're outside and they're walk or outside of their PT sessions walking with either family or with nursing. Um, so then we know that future comparisons, we have the same um, type of path that has been followed. Then last but not least, with respect to standardization, um, the way that you're utilizing your EMR, it can make things in the future much easier. There is a very easy access to demographic information. Usually that's all entered in the same spot, but you want to try to make sure that whatever outcome measures you're interested 
you're using, everyone is putting them in the same spot in the medical record. Um, it just saves a lot of time if you're going back in the future and manually trying to find scores if they're all documented in the same location. Um, it also may set you up to format a, uh, a report to run if they're all in the same location. Um, and then it can get pulled automatically. Okay, and then the last kind of practical tip um, that I have to share involves how you are going to share the information. Um, Brie will be presenting on how to write an abstract and a grant, depending on how you decide to share your information. The biggest tip that I would like to offer is that don't feel like you need to wait for your project to be done. Um, often sharing just some early information, pilot data, that first patient that you use is a great way to get some feedback on your project that may make your process much easier. Similarly, don't feel like the first sharing of your information needs to be a formal paper. Um, it's great to consider a poster or a platform presentation. Again, it's a great way to get some feedback on your project. And then quite often, a lot of the writing that you do for the poster or the platform can then spill over into um, the paper when you do decide to write that. All right. So in terms of writing, we'll turn it over to Bree to start to talk about the abstract itself. All right. Thank you, Donna. Can you let me know if you can hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. So thanks, everybody. I apologize. I'm going to leave my video off uh, just to, to add to my Wi-Fi stability here at the moment. Um, but in, in short, with all of the information we've talked about here, we do hope that whether you're at the stage of planning a research project or perhaps you're already in the pilot stage or maybe you have done something but you haven't been able to share it, we hope that we can encourage you to disseminate. Um, that clinicians and other researchers don't know what we've done if we don't talk about it. So it's super important that we all become comfortable with sharing our knowledge and our experience through our research with other audiences. In order to get that information disseminated, we do have to understand how to write a good solid abstract. So an abstract can certainly be part of a submission to a journal, like in a manuscript, although that process is a little different because when you're submitting to a journal manuscript, um, you, you will include your abstract with your manuscript submission. It isn't separate. So that process is a little different. And we're gonna focus today on talking about abstract writing specifically for conferences in terms of poster or platform presentations. So what an abstract is, is obviously a short summary and we're gonna have word and character limits that will apply. But remember at this point, you're submitting an abstract in order to gain acceptance into that conference to be able to present your poster or your platform presentation. So that means you really are selling or marketing something. And as with any selling and marketing, it's important to know who your audience is. And it's important to consider once they've read this, will they want to know more? Will they want to see your entire poster that has more detail? Or will they want to hear you speak in a platform presentation to share a little bit more information? 
So if you do submit to a post or to a conference and, and gain acceptance for a post or a platform, or even a presentation to present content on a little more uh, broad perspective, then you do have to understand that um, you will be asked to attend that conference. So um, that is part of the deal if you are if you are submitting that you guarantee that you will be there. A tip I want to encourage is if you do plan to submit, say, for a manuscript, read other articles in the journal, right? Use that as your guide and look at a couple of them because then you can mirror some of the uh, writing, some of the setup and organization that you see um, because obviously that, that article got accepted. And the same is true for conferences. You will frequently see conference proceedings published and you can go back and read what were the accepted abstracts. Um, and that should help you refine um, your product. Next slide, please. So a few tips of what to include and, and what to avoid. If we think back to Dr. Berardi's tips on writing a case report or a case series, you're gonna see common headings here in the abstract. Again, each source or each uh, publication source or each conference is going to have different terms that they want you to use. That's why it's important to read directions. But overall, it's the same essential components. And uh, item one is arguably the most important. It is telling the problem or background and really explaining to the audience why it matters and to whom, who, who cares um, why this problem really matters and why what you did matters. You'll certainly include your methods, results, and conclusions, just like you did uh, with the discussion of writing a case report or case series, but certainly on a much smaller scale here. What you want to avoid is too much background information, abbreviations or acronyms that haven't yet been defined, too much jargon, or really going beyond the purpose and findings of your product. So they will be looking for that if you're giving more background than is appropriate, or if your discussion or conclusion section include things that really aren't relevant to your very specific research question, it becomes distracting. So you really wanna stay with that purpose and findings of your project. And finally, in your discussion, conclusion, sometimes there's a clinical relevance section, you wanna make sure that you are avoiding bias or really overreaching your conclusions. Remember that every study's conclusions really apply to the sample that was tested. So uh, readers and, and people who choose to accept these um, abstracts for uh, sharing will want to look for that. They'll wanna make sure that you have limited your bias and again, stick to exactly what you did and what you found uh, without going beyond that. Next slide. So the final steps in abstract writing are edit, edit, edit. If you can walk away from it and come back and edit again, it's important to be clear and concise and limit those excess words. Things that we do when we're talking or even the word that is often unnecessary, go back and reread. There's a word count limit. So get rid of those excess words. And sometimes that, that takes some practice as well as just stepping away and coming back. Remember you're trying to be short but impactful with your words. And then finally get an outsider to review it, somebody else to make sure that they understand what you're saying, what your purpose was, what your goal was, and ask them if they would want to know more. So final considerations, if you're submitting to a journal, uh, will the readers of that journal find what you're writing about appealing? If you're submitting to a conference, will the audience want to know more and want to hear from you and want to show up for your presentation once you get there? And then the final tip is after you've finished your abstract, go back and revisit your title. So if we're saying the abstract is selling your product to be able to, to share it with an audience, 
really the title is where it starts. So when someone reads your title, will they even want to read your abstract? So it's important to, to get that abstract done and then go back and make sure your title is really selling it for you also. Next slide. So then we're gonna talk quickly about grant writing tips. And I do wanna point out that scholarly writing, what we're talking about with manuscripts and abstracts for conferences, that type of writing and style of writing is different from grant writing. And typically it's because grant writing is more persuasive, more personal, and more for general leadership with simplified language. It certainly depends on the source of the grant funding, but typically it will be much more persuasive and personal than scholarly writing will be. If you are applying for grants, it's important to know your funding source. Public funders are typically accountable to others like taxpayers while private funders are accountable to themselves. Private funders are often driven by their own interests, commonalities versus the guidelines and regulations of public funders. So it's important if you're going to submit for a grant that you seek out information from the websites, maybe even looking at the bios of the staff or the board of directors, figure out what their priorities are, what they value because a good fit matters we're really trying to determine if that funding source is a good fit for you and for your project. They will have criteria listed on what they wanna fund, what type of project they wanna fund, what topic areas, uh, maybe even what type of researcher. Some will specifically say they want new researchers or they want clinician researchers. So look for that and seek that out. Sometimes they require a scholarly record and that would mean that you have other publications or even previous grant funding. If you don't have that, then it may not be worth your time um, to write the grant. So just make sure you understand what they really want and value. Next slide. So just like for abstract writing, reading the rules is super important. Understanding the expectations, the eligibility criteria, formatting requirements, and really all of us underestimate how long it takes to go through that and make sure that our writing matches the expectations but it will make a big difference. Some um, applications will get disqualified right away just for not following the rules. So make sure you're looking at that. And then maybe circle that part that says scoring rubrics. If you start with the end in mind, how's it going to be scored? Then I'm looking at that rubric and I'm trying to draft my grant application to meet the expectations of that rubric so that I can get the most points possible. My apologies, there are some similarities to writing abstracts. So even with grant writing, similar to abstracts, we're starting with well-defined objectives and a very clear hypothesis. It is important that the readers know that you have a solid research question and hypothesis, but also that you've done the background work, that you've done your lit search, and that you're not one-sided, that you acknowledge that maybe perhaps some researchers have suggested this, but you are suggesting that and, and let them know that you understand the breadth of the literature and you understand where the holes are and, and what gap you're trying to fill. <clears throat> Make your story compelling and interesting. And again, remember with grant writing, you are trying to sell why your work is important and deserves funding. Next slide. So some final considerations for grant writing tips is that your rationale matters and the grant reviewers want to know that you know what you're talking about, that you're well-informed. But this last point is really important. Do the grant reviewers believe that you're capable of seeing this project through to the end? If they give you money, are you going to use it wisely? And are you going to finish a product and then publish your product so that they are then acknowledged 
for having supported that project. They wanna know that it will make it to the finish line. They wanna know that it's feasible and that your team is well equipped to manage it. So another tip is the same as abstract writing and make sure you edit, 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 and then get reviews from outside peers. Next slide. This slide has examples of some grant funding opportunities. And you can also go to the IPTA and then IPTF, the Research Foundation page, um, to find links to NIH and several other associated agencies that can be valuable that are listed here. Remember that there are huge grant funders, um, typically with higher requirements and expectations, but that there are also small grant funding agencies. And the IPTA does a great job of helping link us to some of those sources. Don't forget about um, looking at your local sections and academies. So looking specifically for um, IPTA, but then uh, other state sections possibly if that's appropriate for you, or perhaps your clinic has sites in multiple states, um, or looking at the specific sections or academies um, to see what type of funding sources they can provide. Next slide, please. And we do want to specifically call out the IPTF Research Fund. That's um, the IPTA works with IPTF and we get sponsorship. There's a thousand dollar research grant um, that's given every year. And it is a relatively small research grant, but a thousand dollars can go a long way. And we all know that we do typically need some sort of funding to help us complete these projects that we wanna do. And the biggest point that I want to bring home here is that this research grant very specifically says that they want to support new researchers and clinical researchers. So I'm guessing the majority of us here on this call fit that category. So this is a great initial grant, um, or even if you've had some other small grants, this is a great opportunity. And the deadline to apply this year is September 15th. My final tip for grant funding is to look at the acknowledgement section of other uh, journal manuscripts, or again, even within conference materials, look for those acknowledgements of funding sources. Because if you're reading something that has a similar background of the uh, type of research you're looking into or, or um, the type of study that you want to design, then look for those as examples. If, if this uh, funding agency funded this project, perhaps they would fund yours too. And next slide. So that concludes our presentation, hopefully wrapping up some thoughts about writing abstracts and um, maybe submitting for grant applications for funding, and we will open the door for questions at this time. there are any questions, you can feel free to unmute yourself or place your questions in the chat function. And I'll chime in, Sarah, if there aren't questions, I think some of our uh, maybe potential lead-ins here um, are what else do you need? What else can we as the research team help with in terms of providing these types of seminars? Should we focus more specifically on one piece of this to dive in a little bit more? Should we um, possibly talk about discussions of uh, clinical and academic partnerships and really dive into how to make that happen. Do we want more resources on abstract writing? These are some ideas we tossed out and, and um, our next question would be, what else can we do to help?
So there's a question in the chat. Are there any resources for clinicians and or researchers to communicate to initiate discussions on potential research collaborations? Um, Giovanni, you might want to speak on this. Sure. And then I have an additional thought. So I don't know if there is necessarily formal resources per se, um, at least from some experiences I've had in the past, um, obviously going to a conference and seeing who's doing the research and touching base with all those folks uh, to kind of share, you know, similar concepts or ideas in regards to a research project you may want to initiate. Uh, that's always helpful. I think from both aspects, the researchers, because they want to reach out to clinicians as well and try to get into the clinic and do clinical-based research, uh, but also for the clinician who wants to do some research or who perhaps may not have the expertise or is just not sure uh, how to go about implementing the study. Um, so that's one way in regards to trying to initiate that communication. Uh, but if you do have a fond interest of a particular type of research or you, you are familiar with the researcher's um, uh, history in regards to their uh, you know, record of literature, um, don't don't hesitate to reach out. I mean, from my experience, overwhelming majority of the people are more than willing to discuss with you and are happy to initiate conversation and discussion uh, about any potential research projects. So, uh, you know, don't, don't hesitate and don't be afraid to, to reach out to your colleagues. Another thing that I think would be something to consider is if your clinic takes students from any schools or you have any connection with schools through clinical education, maybe see, look on the website for the school about who teaches content in the area that you have interest in. Um, there are tons of um, professors out there that would love, you know, data from clinicians and partnerships, you know, to do their scholarly agenda. So um, if you already have connections with schools through clinical ed, um, that may be an easy pathway to initiate some of those discussions um, through the, the clinical ed or through even like if you contact the director of clinical ed for that school, they may be able to partner you up. Um, I would I would agree. We've had some success that way, um, getting connected with particular faculty members um, that have an interest. Um, and it's also been a lot of networking at conferences, um, you know, walking through the poster presentations, finding somebody that has a similar interest, getting their card, communicating and things like that. Um, also, there's an opportunity if you are at a little bit larger of an institution, um, you know, if you have a residency program, sometimes the residents um, are interested in collaborating with others in terms of the project that they have to complete during their residency. So that might be an option as well. Are there any other resources or questions or presentations that 
you know, anyone on here thinks would be valuable or, you know, even like a team discussion or anything like that as far as um, research and, and fostering that for you all. Well, it looks like uh, everyone is uh, got a lot to think about. I just want to really thank our presenters tonight for giving such a fantastic presentation. I did record the spotlight, which normally we don't. However, I did record it because I think it's an excellent resource uh, and we will be putting it on the IPTF website. So uh, again, thank you for coming. Make sure you are logged in when you complete the survey and Hopefully this has you inspired to complete some research. Have a great night.